Hello, listeners. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to come on and make a quick acknowledgement and apology. Uh, Later in the episode, Ashley and I tackle a letter where... uh, someone's transition comes up. Uh, and a friend had pointed out to me after listening to the episode that, uh, a couple of times I used the phrase, either your biological sex or being born male or being born female. Um, both of which are phrases that are inaccurate, lazy, and often utilized uh, in really transphobic ways to suggest that biological sex is uh, easily recognizable, legible, immutable, uh, always falls into one of two categories, um, and cannot be changed, um, and which is often used to deny trans people um, basic humanity. Uh, so just really wanted to take a minute and apologize. Um, the, the language that I ought to have been using, the language that I will use in future is assigned male or assigned female at birth. Um, it was just a lazy moment of reaching for, um, you know, language I'd heard a lot before. And that really reinforces, uh, a worldview that is not accurate, is not true to our experiences. And it really harms people. And I just apologize for that. Um, that's so not the kind of, uh, way of looking at the world that I, I want the show to be about, or that I would want to suggest to anyone. So, um, there are many ways in which biological sex is as, as much of a construct as gender can be, uh, there are uh, elements of, uh, there's a lot of different elements that go into it. And, and I don't mean in any way to suggest that there is some sort of immutable, unchangeable biological sex, um, uh, while discussing somebody's transition. So thanks so much for bearing with us back to the show. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio just a little bit later is going to be friend of the show, Ashley Ford. I'm very excited for you all to get to meet her. But first, a word about jewelry-based rivalries. Um, we got a letter this week from a woman whose fiancé had recently proposed to her uh, with a ring she hates that is too big, and she found the receipt for it and learned that her fiancé had spent a year's salary on it, all of which is just amazing and juicy to begin with. But here's the kicker, friends. Uh, The fiancé in question had purchased this, you know, giant debilitating ring monster uh, because he needed, he felt that he needed to buy a ring that was bigger than the ring his brother had given his sister-in-law, which first of all, I mean, congratulations, buddy, you won. Your brother is not going to be able to sleep at night now because of the slightly bigger ring uh, that, that your woman is now wearing. But I just love the idea of more men having rivalries that are played out through the giving of jewels. Um, I think that as a society, we have sadly strayed from jewel-based rivalries, and I want to bring them back. Um, I definitely don't encourage you to buy your fiancé's rings that they hate that you spent a year's worth of your salary on. But if you're going to do it, um, do it on on some sort of, I don't know, cursed emerald or tiara that means she can't sit up straight anymore and has to have like a team of specialists constantly helping her balance her own neck. Like, yeah, if you're going to have a rival, um, fight them through the 
giving of jewels. And please send us pictures uh, of the just fabulous uh, bracelets and tiaras and crowns and I don't know parapets that you fling at your at your beloveds. Um, that sounds amazing, and I want more of that in the world. Uh, speaking of things I want more of in the world, Ashley C. Ford is a writer, editor, and public speaker who lives in New York, and she's on my show right now. Hi, Ashley. Hello. Has anyone tried to give you a jewel in order to uh, damage someone else? <laughs> um, no. I, you know, my grandma would always give me. Um, some of her costume jewelry, and often in front of my mother. Oh, so it was kind uh, of and like... And I don't know... To let your mom know. Yeah, that like I was an improvement on the situation, <gasps> I think spite maybe. jewelry. Oh, yeah, it was definitely spite jewelry. It was a very complicated existence between the two of them. <laughs> and did you then, like, Mildred pierce the situation and threat <laughs> your new jewels in front of your mom, as if to say, like, take that, old woman? I'm, no, I'm because, the person now? No, because I was 11 and already kind of a weird dresser. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I couldn't add one more thing. You know, I, I always walked this very fine line in, um, in my young adulthood between, like, um, just so weird people can't handle you mm-hmm. and, like, weird that it's, like, quirky but also kind of cute. Like, I was, I was just at, like, the quirky cute situation right. and if, if you i had, had showed been up wearing, yeah if i'd like, shown up in those you know costume baubles my I grandmother think, gave me these jewels <laughs> do you like that they were my grandmothers yes you they know like going me. full white diamonds like full Liz Taylor. <laughs> like i just i don't see myself um having had the same experience with my classmates I, uh, there's just like the road not taken of your life where mm-hmm. you did like a full, I don't know if you remember the movie Gigi, but the Aunt Alicia character who basically just never leaves the house, wears increasingly elaborate outfits and explains <laughs> jewels to her uh, grandniece Gigi. And she says things like, great kings never give great jewels. I believe it's because they feel they don't have to. Small kings give the best jewels. Uh, or like, look for the elusive blue flame in your emeralds. Um, and, and I like absorbed a lot of that messaging. So as someone who has never owned like real jewels, I feel like I'm very ready. Like if that day ever comes, I'm going to know what kind of emeralds to get. Um, and to say things like, did you see her pearls? They were dipped. (laughs) They were dipped. Dipped. His love for her must be fading. So I guess if anyone out there is looking to like really stick it to their brothers or someone else in their life and you need someone to lob jewels at, you know, I am available. (laughs) Ashley, are you available for, for gifts of jewels? I am always available for gifts of jewels. I'm also available for monetary gifts. Great. Um, um, Property gifts. Titles, deeds. Accept titles, deeds, securities. Awesome. Fabulous. So if anyone's got an old, like, I don't know, copper mine that they uh, don't feel like maintaining anymore, (laughs) Ashley Ford is your gal. Um, So let's turn our attention from the giving and receiving of jewels and tackle what is perhaps the most universal problem, the most relatable problem I've ever come across in this column, which is just group projects. (laughs) <laughs> which no one likes. Um, if you ever want to feel really connected to the other people in the world, just go to Tumblr and search group projects and you will see just a number of like macros with just like that feeling when you're the only one who does work in the group project and like a comical image that will remind you that no one else is willing to work as hard as you. I, I recommend that to everyone. 
At any rate, would you please do us the goodness of uh, reading this first letter? And will you do me a personal favor and read it as if you were wearing a tiara and expensive diamond earrings and a big old necklace made of jewels? Absolutely. Thank you. I got this. Great. Okay, are you ready? I'm so ready. Dear Prudence, (laughs) I am taking a night class to finish my bachelor's degree. One of my classmates... Catherine comes in with some new kind of personal drama every week. If you ask how she is doing, she or someone in her family is suffering from some deadly malady. Last week, she was motion sick from sitting too close to the screen at the movies. The week before, her sister had cervical cancer. This week, she is apparently suffering from residual pain from a car accident. So bad that she had to put some icy hot cream on during class. It stunk up the room so bad the instructor had to the instructor had to open windows and ask her to leave and wash it off. We ended up having to end class early because the smell in the room was so strong it started to make people sick. How do you deal with a person like this? I spent good money taking this class and I chose night classes because I assumed it would be full of mature adults. I try my best to ignore her but I can't anymore. We are partners in a group assignment, and I am forced to have contact with her. Please help. God damn it, Ashley. I can't tell you how beautiful that voice was and how hard it was. You can't do that voice ever again. Uh, it, will, it will ruin my ability to give uh, good advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for that gift of, of hearing someone say, Icy hot cream. Um, that, was, that was truly Icy beautiful. Hot. You, by the way, I, I would have loved to hear you read the subject line, which is just "no class in class." <laughs> no class in oh, class. That was. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Have you, by the way, before we like really address this question, have you ever smelled icy mm-hmm. hot? Yes. I thought it just smelled. It just smells like menthol, right? Like, am I misremembering? Like, um, I think it depends. Like, I have. To be fair, mm-hmm. let me put this out there. I have a really strong sense of smell. Okay. Like really strong. And I'm the kind of person where when I smell something that is terrible, I also taste it like in okay. the back of my throat. So it's pretty strong. And it's pretty strong. Or at least it can be. Like to me, it sounds like she must have slathered on like a bunch of icy hot, which a dramatic person would do. Mm-hmm. Like it wouldn't be enough to put on like the recommended amount. They'd be like, mm-mm, got to really see this hot. Got to like. <laughs> Take it and really like lay it th- lay it on thick. Right. And so if that was the case, then yeah. I love everything about this letter. I think in part because it's kind of low stakes, in part because it sounds like they're both, both the letter writer and the, the Catherine in question sound pretty dramatic, um, which is okay, letter writer. It is okay to be a little dramatic. Please don't, don't, don't mm-hmm. feel like that makes you a bad person. But just like I thought night classes were going to be full of mature adults. Um, and I'm so sorry to like have to let you know, like, that's just not, no, no. Um, that's just going to be life. Like whether it's school or work, there's always going to be people you find unnecessarily dramatic and um, who are not good at kind of getting a grip on themselves um, and who overreact to things. And that's just going to be, there will always be someone who you have to be in a group project with who you just think you are so exhausting. That will never go away. Absolutely. So just give up, I guess, is is my mm-hmm. answer to this question. Do you have any do you have any advice yeah. beyond just give up? Um, I would say, you know, like 
I always try to remember because I feel like every once in a while I am in situations and I've luckily minimized these in my life. But there are still I find myself in situations where I have to, for a consistent amount of time, be um, near someone or engage with someone who I just rather not. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that I always try to keep in mind is, first of all, that um, being socially adept isn't is like an actual gift mm-hmm. like it, it is something that you can learn to do better absolutely but for a lot of people we move through the world in a way where we've picked up so certain things about social grace and about how to interact with each other and it just sort of came easier to us than it came or came or comes to other people right so I try to keep that in mind all the time I also try to keep in mind that I just can't <laughs> I just can't control other people right. I can only control my reactions right. <laughs> to people that is the only thing I can control and when I even for a second think that like I can do something to make another person behave differently that's when like what was annoyance becomes like anger right and like all consuming this is not not okay and like justice yes. must be done and i'm definitely getting a hint of that in this letter and i i identify with that i i have felt that in my own life cuz like if you look at this in reality what this person has is an irritating classmate um that mm-hmm. they have to deal with it sounds like uh once a week um and they're doing a group project together and that's definitely a bummer but it's also it's a part of life. Like she's not trying to follow you home. Um, she's not like asking for rides to and from class. It's it's a pretty like constrained amount of time. Um, but there's this sense of that I'm getting from this letter writer of like, I can't believe I have to put up with someone difficult in a group project. How can that be? And it's like, no, that's actually part of what college is, is learning to work <laughs> yeah. with. And like that will come up in your in the rest of your life. Right. Is like doing a project Always. with someone you don't like, but you have to work with because otherwise they don't pay you. Um, yep. And just how do you kind of minimize your interactions so that you can get, get through it um, and also just accept that, like, you're probably going to find her irritating. So, like, with Catherine, you know, feel free not to ask her how she's doing. Like, you should talk to other people in the classroom. Um, you know, if it, if you guys are talking, if she initiates a conversation and um, she wants to kind of give you a really long, dramatic story, you can just kind of say, I'm really sorry to hear that. I hope things get better. Um, and then mm-hmm. either talk about something else or talk to someone else. Um, if she, You know, you cannot stop her from both talking about the most dramatic things in her life and in the most dramatic way possible. Um, But you also don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about it. Like if she wants to focus on everything that went wrong that week, that's okay. And like some of these are a little more legitimate than others, right? Like if her sister has cervical cancer, that's that's genuinely sad. Um, And, and, you know, I don't know what the details of her car accident were, but like she probably is in some pain and like putting on more than the recommended dosage of icy hot in an enclosed room with other people is not a great (laughs) strategy for dealing with it. But it sounds like your instructor did everything they could, right? They were like, well, we're going to open a window. And then that didn't work. And it was like, ah, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to like, you know, you're going to have to go and we're going to have to end class early, which is not an ideal situation. It's not great, but like it was dealt with, right? Like you didn't all pass Mm -hmm. out from the fumes. Um, So unfortunately, in some ways, I think you guys are handling the situation. It's just not pleasant. 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of the, I feel like sometimes when there's somebody and I feel like everybody has had to deal with somebody in like at some point in their life where whenever they talk to them, like it, they could only bring up bad things. Right. Like people who whenever you say, how's it going? It's like you almost stop wanting to ask them, how's it going? Because mm-hmm. if you say, how's it going? It's like, oh, n- never anything good. Right. Never. And that's exhausting. Um, I, it's exa- like it is. It is emotionally and mentally exhausting. I know that sometimes like it's an attention seeking behavior, you know, and one of the things that like, I mean, <laughs> I hate to put it like this, but, you know, I was a nanny for a really long time. And what you learn really quickly as a nanny is that the things you like the behaviors and the things that this other person does, like you can't change the fact that they did them or that they're going to do them. But like I said, you can change your reaction. And one of the ways that I learned to change my reactions with kids is to just like, you know, I only like when somebody tells me something bad, I just say, you know, I'm so sorry that happened. You know, really hope things start to look up for you soon. Mm -hmm. But if they say something positive, I engage and I ask them to tell me more. And I like, like keep going. And I think sometimes people just do what they think will get them the most attention. Mm-hmm. They'll do what they think people find most interesting. And if the only time you engage a person is when they're talking about something negative, then they'll keep doing it. But if you try to engage them when they talk about things positive or, you know, or even just saying, you know, oh, man, that really sucks. Did anything like it sounds like you had a really tough week. Did anything good happen this week? Yeah. You know, like sometimes you just have to like redirect. Yep. And that's a huge thing I learned working with kids is redirect. And sometimes you have to do it with adults, too. <laughs> no, I, I think that's so helpful. I think redirect. Um, minimize contact if you have to um, find something else you look forward to afterwards. But yeah, bear in mind, this is not going to change. Like there's that line, I spent good money taking this class. And the kind of implication there is one of the things I am purchasing is uh, never having to deal with someone unpleasant or or immature or who I just don't like. Um, and unfortunately, right. that is not something that money can buy you. Maybe at a certain level, if you have so much money, you can just like pay people to leave a room. Um, but you know, you paid good money to take a class with other human beings and some human beings are Mm -hmm. difficult and some human beings focus on the bad and some people play up everything difficult that happens to them to maximize, um, attention and sympathy. And that's definitely a bummer, but you also don't have to engage on the level they're asking you to. So like, you know, you try your best to ignore her. Great. And you also can't all the time. You have to have contact with her. Um, so -hmm. do your work with her, you know, like, um, redirect if she gets off topic too much, do your own work, um, do your best to communicate with her, um, attempt to be patient with her and be reminded that you will not have to work with her forever. Um, but that's, that's kind of the limit. Like you can't necessarily like, as long as she's getting her end of the work done, like you can't go to the professor and say like, Hey, I don't like her. Give me another group partner. Like that's part of the nature of group projects and frankly, why everyone hates group projects, right? Like you have to work with people and we all hate people, (laughs) but you can do this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And especially when we can't pay them to leave. Yeah. You, you will get to do this a lot throughout your life. um, And you can, and, uh, you know, it will definitely be a, a relief to you when you are no longer working on a group project with her. And you certainly are not obligated to listen to her sob story for hours on end every week. But, um, yeah, you just get to develop the skills of uh, dealing with her the best you can and then letting it go. 
And then, you know, look forward to the day when you never have to do another group project again. I don't know when that will be. It will depend on what kind of work you go into. Maybe you will be like 75 and you will finish your last group project. You'll be like, yes, it's over. <laughs> now my life begins today. All right. So uh, moving a little down the line uh, in terms of uh, like where people are at in their professional lives, the next letter is, again, there's a lot of really great titles today. This one is called Lexaprofessional, um, which is a great portmanteau that I plan on using at some point this week. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. Dear Prudence, about a month and a half ago, I received that dreaded call into my head boss's K office where he and my direct boss D were waiting for me. My productivity at work has been suffering, in my opinion, for years, and it finally came to the attention of management, although they only mentioned one particular project. D very possibly saved my job, and I'm very appreciative. I believe this meeting was the kick in the rear that I needed, and I've since buckled down and improved both my organizational skills and efficiency. I don't doubt there will be a follow-up meeting with the head boss asking, what happened and why did things get so bad? Prudy, I've been diagnosed with a depression, and it's been going on for so long, I don't even know when it began. I've recently started taking medication that has improved my mood and focus. My question is this, how do I address those follow-up questions in a way that doesn't disclose my medical situation? Should I admit that I was depressed and have recently gotten help? D did take responsibility for my poor performance and possibly deserves the truth. I'm just afraid my mental health won't be taken seriously by K, maybe even D, and might also be seen as a cop-out. Although my private situation adversely affected my work, I feel this is deeply personal, and I'd like to keep my professional life and private life separate. Thank you for your consideration. Wow. Man, yeah. Do you have any, any thoughts off the top of your head of just what you think is the um, best course of action? You know, I think sometimes there is a way to share with um, our in our professional environments that we are struggling in our personal life and that that might require um, a little bit of um, hopefully compassion on their part, um, some understanding and maybe even, you know, some adjustments to our role. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think you have to get super specific about a diagnosis all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I have been in situations where, you know, I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a writer professionally and I have really bad anxiety, mm. you know, and depression. And I have definitely been in situations where um, I have fallen behind professionally, that I've found it um, hard to even get started professionally because of my anxiety and because of my depression. Yeah. And when it's time to address that with a superior, um, lucky for me, <laughs> it's so far, I've been very comfortable um, telling my superiors that, you know, I live and work with anxiety. And so that is an issue for me right now. And this is how I'm working on it. And, you know, if we can make adjustments, these are the adjustments that, you know, I, I hope we can make. But, you know, I realize that not everybody works in a situation like that. And in that case, I would tell people to just say, hey, I'm dealing with a deeply personal medical issue. Mm -hmm. um, I am on my end handling it. I am in conversation with, you know, a, like a doctor. You don't have to say a therapist. You don't have to say a psychiatrist. You could just say I am like working on this with my doctor and we are figuring out um, what are the best ways for me to handle it. Uh, I've started a new medication. I already feel the effects of that medication. Um, helping me uh, stay focused on work when I'm at work instead of dealing with this personal thing. 
And I just look forward to doing a better job and doing a job that is more consistent with my values for my work. Yeah, I I think that's a great way to kind of walk the line. And I want to point out just logistically, um, you know, clinically diagnosed depression is covered by the American with Disabilities Act. Um, Mm -hmm. As of 2008, that was updated to reflect things known as invisible conditions. Um, So uh, were you to disclose that you had been diagnosed by a doctor with depression and you were being treated, you would have legal protections. And in fact, your workplace would be required um, to to reasonably accommodate you. That's the kind of term that's often used is what are reasonable accommodations, Um, which is not to say that you need to do that or that you even need to ask for reasonable accommodations, although you can. Um, sometimes with things like depression, that comes from certain work flexibility to attend um, uh, you know, doctor's appointments or therapeutical sessions, um, sometimes a, a more flexible work sharing program, sometimes occasionally working from home. There's other other um, things that come into play. But, um, you know, if, if you want to do a little research into like what protections the ADA Act can or the ADA can afford you, um, because uh, it is not legal for them to retaliate if you were, but only if you disclose, I should say, um, only with a disclosed condition, um, if if if. Um, if you brought it up, if you notified your bosses and they um, attempted to fire you as a result, um, uh, you know, you would have recourse, um, which I know is not the same thing as the sort of invisible pushback we can sometimes get. Right. Um, or even the fear if I don't explain and they make assumptions about why things happened and, and I eventually end up um, getting fired as a result, like that won't necessarily be protected. So it's a real fear. But I just want to let you know, like you do have certain protections. Um, but you, there's sort of two things, right, that the letter writer says is number one, they're afraid that their head boss and maybe even their direct supervisor won't take their mental health issues seriously. And I don't know if that's just because like that's a part of the sort of culture writ large or if they have said or done things that suggest they are the kind of like walk it off uh, people who think that like if it's not bleeding, it's not a problem. Um, And there I would just say like, you know, your own situation best. Like if part of you has reason to suspect um, that they would be really dismissive of your disclosing something like depression. Um, you do not have to, like, there are ways to talk about, um, like kind of like Ashley, like what you recommended, um, just to say there was like a medical condition that I needed to address. I really apologize. It affected my work. I've taken certain steps mm-hmm. to make sure that it will not do so in the future. Here's the strategies that I have in place right now, um, to sort of check on my progress on other projects and to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Um, moving forward, I anticipate that like such and such a project will be done on such and such a date. Um, and that I think is sufficient information for your bosses to hear, to know, okay, there's a plan where we're, you know, go ahead and like go through with it. Things are going to be different. So you don't have to. And then there's also that sense that you feel like it's also personal and you and you don't necessarily want to share. So you can, but you don't have to, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, But if you do, especially if you just want to check in with your direct boss, um, who it sounds like you have a slightly better relationship with, who is really willing to sort of put themselves on the line for you, I think there is an excellent chance, unless you have very specific reason to think otherwise, to say um, a little bit more openly with them. Again, you don't have to go into great detail, um, but just I've been dealing with... uh, you know, uh, chronic clinical depression. Um, and it has made it really difficult to focus and get my work done. And I've gone to a doctor, I'm on medication and I'm taking steps to resolve it. Um, I, I don't want to 
um, you know, make this like an issue that comes up between us a lot. I just want you to know there were sort of serious extenuating circumstances that led to this behavior, um, and I've taken steps to address it. Um, and that might be easier, and your boss might be able to help you figure out, well, here's how we'll talk about it with Kay that doesn't necessarily share everything you've just told me. Because yep. it sounds like your boss wants you to stick around. Your boss wants things to work. Like your boss is, it sounds like, on your team. And if your boss is on your team, it's like that's enough to make your case. You know, like there is an element in that situation of um, just being supported and that providing a certain amount of safety to say what you need to say. And again, like it's what you need to say. Like there are some things that you might want to say you know, or don't want to say, and you know, don't worry about those things. Like you can decide in the moment what you want and don't want to say, right. you know, or what you feel comfortable or not comfortable revealing. Right. But in the meantime, the things that you need to address are just like Mallory said, like you just need to address um, with this boss that you had an issue, mm -hmm. that the issue has been addressed and that you don't anticipate future problems with the issue. Right. Right. And just, you know, again, just I just want to like affirm to you, let her writer, like, I'm so glad that you've been able to see a doctor and that this medication is helping you. And I hope you don't feel like I am a work robot who must never have personal problems again. Um, obviously, I understand that it is your goal to be able to do your job well. And I think that's a laudable one. Um, but to also, I think, be be good to yourself about the fact that this was not something you did because you just were sort of like, eh, don't really care. Who gives a shit? Like, this was something that was clearly right. very difficult for you. And, and I think you don't give yourself credit for getting the help that you needed. And for, I, I think, also bear in mind that, you know, um, uh, getting treatment for a mental health issue is fantastic. And it also doesn't necessarily mean you're going to just like never have troubles again. Um, and just to, I don't know, be, I, I guess just like give yourself a lot of credit for the work that you've already done. Um, and to bear in mind that, um, you've, you've been working really hard, uh, with something that's, tr that's really a challenge. Um, and, you know, if you were to tell your direct boss, again, under the ADA, like, uh, they, that does not mean they're going to be able to go disclose it to your coworkers or just say, like, oh, well, you know, letter writer wasn't able to finish that project because they've got depression. Like, that's not something that they are allowed to do. So bear in mind that you do have some um, right to expect discretion from them. So uh, this next one. The subject line is just beautiful, uh, and mm -hmm. I would love for you to read it, please. Not not as if you were wearing a lot of jewels, just as if you had recently no, no, done no. this thing. I'll go super normal now. I'll just go by myself where I'm, okay. I'm not wearing jewels, but I am wearing a fork that somebody turned into a ring. Mm -hmm. um, subject, I blocked my boyfriend on Facebook. Dear Prudence, my boyfriend of seven years recently got on Facebook. I have had one for years. He has started regularly waking me up in the middle of the night to yell at me about what's on my page. Comments between friends, male acquaintances commenting, nothing really inappropriate unless it's between my girlfriends and I in a joking manner. My photos aren't all that seductive either, mostly headshots, but I'm an attractive woman and even benign compliments send him into a rage. Me posting a new selfie is unacceptable because it must be for another guy. We have children together, and his entire family is on my Facebook. No one else has made mention of anything inappropriate, and I don't think there's anything worth giving a second look to either. 
We have both created trust issues years ago. Although I thought we had moved beyond that, he has been picking me apart, though. So I told him I deleted my Facebook and blocked him instead, and perhaps harshly told him we should talk about where we stand. I realize this is wrong, but I keep in touch with my family across the country. My career relies on social media, and it's a frequent platform for my friends and I to talk. I've already done away with my Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Is there a better solution? You could do away with your boyfriend. Sorry, that was just set up so beautifully (laughs) that I was like, yeah, there's a much easier solution than deleting all of those accounts. Delete this guy, Uh, by which I don't mean murder him. I want to be really clear. Um, Right. (laughs) So, Ashley, uh, I I, I don't know if you are able to listen to the podcast recently. You don't have to say whether you do or not. I just want you to know something that comes up on the podcast not infrequently is people who regularly wake someone else up in the middle of the night for a non-emergency. I don't understand this. And how I much understand. I don't understand it. And like to see it show up again, it's just like there is an epidemic of just <laughs> jerks who get in relationships right? and are like, at last, someone I can wake up on a regular basis. It does kind of feel like we're in this country not talking about the real issues. If yeah. truly this many people are waking someone else up in the middle of the night for a non-emergency. And I, it's like, yeah, like we definitely want to address gun safety at some point. All right. Yep. Uh, but until then, mm-hmm. let's talk about this local issue. And by local, I mean happening in bedrooms across the country. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense. So not OK. Um, I think everyone gets to do it once in a relationship, right? Everyone gets one irrational pass of, I'm so mad about something. We're talking about it right now. Um, And once you've used it up, you're done. And if you use it again, they get to be done with you. Um, So the line in this one that really bummed me out was, we have children together because uh, Mm -hmm. just I I, I wasn't expecting it. And um, that definitely uh, complicates things. But... um, yeah. Do you think like the, 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 this letter writer, she says, uh, I know that this was wrong, which is to say, like, I know that it was wrong to block him on Facebook. Do you think she was wrong to block her boyfriend? I on don't Facebook? think she was wrong. I don't think she was wrong because clearly he can't handle it. Yeah. Facebook's like, not a right. A it's a privilege. It really is. And there's like a there's truly a difference between, you know, someone being like, hey, I'm feeling kind of weird about some of the things I saw posted on Facebook. And then you could be like, oh, well, that's nothing. And here's why. Sure. You know, like this is how you end up in these situations where, you know, like a husband and wife or a couple or whatever have the same Facebook page. Oh, my God. And like that is just a to me, just like uh, it automatically says, "Okay, who messed up? (laughs) Right. <laughs> like who did the wrong thing? Who because is that's in the, dog the only who's in the doghouse because that's the only reason anybody, in my opinion, should ever ha- share a Facebook page with a spouse or partner. But whatever. Um, it also just seems to me like, uh, like how unhealthy is it that your <laughs> your boyfriend is not only looking at your Facebook, but he's clearly only looking at it 
for evidence of some wrongdoing that he either suspects or has suspected or he's feeling really insecure about his own. Like I, I just I don't know. Like it, the whole thing sounds emotionally messy yeah. in a way that, you know, is like this is not about Facebook. No, no. Like I, I understand that Facebook is the catalyst here for the question, but the issues in this relationship are not about Facebook. No, they are not. I mean, th- Facebook did not do this. <laughs> Right. Facebook did not ruin your relationship. Um, like she says, benign compliments sent him into a rage. Uh, and yeah. that if I post a picture of myself, it's unacceptable because it must be for the benefit of another guy. So basically what he's saying is if you think you look nice today and you want your friends and and other people in your life to see how much you like your hair and to just sort of affirm like, this is me. This is my hair. I think I look nice today. It must be because you're trying to have an affair. That is like yep. irrational, inappropriate, bananas, jealousy. Um, and you yeah. should block him. Absolutely. And like not just block him, but say like, this is so not OK. Um, mm-hmm. You 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 are not going to be able to access any of my social media. I think you should bring back your Instagram, Twitter and Snapchat. That's like bring them back up. You're, you're you are not like doing anything wrong or out of the ordinary for just like a regular human being who likes to use social media. Um, And and I think it's absolutely appropriate that you said we should talk about where we stand, because I have to wonder, like, is this the first time he has said things to you? Like, if you take a picture of yourself, it's because you want someone else to have sex with you. Or is this the first time he's freaked out because of your friendship with another guy? Um, There's no way. My guess is this is not the first time. And if <laughs> There's he's no way. <laughs> waking you up in the middle of the night to yell at you Please. for the fact that a guy you know commented on your Facebook page. Um, that's... I wish my boyfriend would. <laughs> here's the thing. Nobody. Here's nobody who I didn't either give birth to. Mm-hmm. Adopt mm-hmm. or or is like an animal. Yeah. If you're not if you don't fit into those three categories, you better not never wake me up in the yeah. middle of the night out of my sleep. Mm-mm. Not unless you want to like not be welcome in my home. Yeah. Anymore. No, absolutely. <laughs> like, I can't imagine. And I'm with you. I think, you know, if she enjoyed Instagram, Twitter and Snapchat, not only am I going to say that you didn't do anything wrong by blocking him on Facebook, I'm going to say bring back the rest of your social media yep. and girl, block him again thrice. Yep. Yep. Block him again from all the other three platforms. Do it again. Yep. Three just, times. I don't because what because why does he need He's also because when he does that, he's also doing something to himself. Yeah. Like it's not even just like what he's doing to you is worse. Let me be clear. But also the act of getting on Facebook or whatever the social media of your partner just to look for reasons not to trust them Mm -hmm. or just to look for indicators that they haven't been faithful is you also doing something to yourself. It's you affirming some insecurity or some uncomfortable thing inside of you. Yes. So. So it's like so blocking him isn't just like it's for the primary reason is that it's for you. That's the you know, the 
But the bonus is it's actually probably going to help him, too. Yep. He doesn't need access to that. Right. And and I think to just say, I've blocked you and like, man, here is why. Um, because the mm-hmm. issues are your jealousy and your insecurity. And the fact that you're willing to do things like regularly wake me up in the middle of the night to yell at me for having male friends who want to talk to me. That's not OK. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to allow you to do that to me. And then you also get to need to, I think, have that uh, follow up conversation about where you guys stand. Um, Um, Because if he persists in saying, nope, this is totally normal and appropriate, I have a right to do these things, um, I I think you should break up with him, even if you have children together. Um, I do not think that that is something you should put yourself through. I don't think that's normal couple behavior. I don't think that's something that, like, you guys can go to counseling together for and talk through. I think that's a pretty basic principle of privacy um, and, and, like, not trying to control uh, and isolate and guilt someone for having friends or for being a like good-looking human being who wants to occasionally show people their face. Um, yeah, I just feel like if his response is kind of anything other than, wow, I really need to get a hold on my own anger and insecurity and jealousy and really rethink the way that I treat you, um, then I, I think you should consider, you know, figuring out a useful custody agreement um, and getting this guy out of your life and blocking him from your home. I'm sorry. That's such a dumb like, oh, let's use the language of social media to refer to other stuff. But I, I couldn't help it. Yeah, this guy sucks. Awesome. Yeah, he sucks so bad. I don't you know, my boyfriend is not on um, social media very much. Like he does have a Facebook mm-hmm. and that's the only social media that he's ever signed up for. Uh-huh. And he even then, like his his Facebook is like a ghost town, right? Like he never checks it. It's just like a thing that's there. Every once in a while, he'll post something I wrote to say how proud he is of me or whatever. But oh that's God. it. That's and really charming, first of all. Well, <laughs> I mean, but that's that's just how he is. He's yeah. 20. You know, he just turned um, 27, but he's <gasps> 65 in his soul. Yeah. Like he's his favorite movie is The Big Chill. But anyway, <laughs> he I, I just like the, the issue that I see here is like there's the jealousy issue. There's the weird space issue. There's also this messed up idea that women um, don't take pride in their appearances for themselves. Yeah, it's um, got to be. Uh, it's got to be. Because I want some in- other guy to fall in love with me. Yeah, that's a super messed up way <laughs> to see um, a woman's attempts to, you know, just make herself feel good about the way she looks or to present herself to the world in the way that she chooses. You know, and this he's not waking her up in the middle of the night to have a conversation about his feelings about these or his own insecurities or what he's worried about. He's right. waking her up in the middle of the night as, you know, an intimidation tactic. Exactly. You know, he's not wake like... somebody up when they're disoriented mm-hmm. and... And immediately let them know what you what you don't like and what you're not going to have and how this is going to go. Like, that's insane to me. That's (laughs) it's wild. Such a good way of putting it. Um, Yeah, I I think this is just a sign that um, he is a controlling and a jealous and an angry person who does not know how to deal with those feelings in a healthy way. Um, And I'm guessing this is not the only time this has come up in your relationship. And I'm guessing this is not the first time he has made you feel like there's something inherently wrong with you because you are attractive um, and you sometimes take pictures of your own face. Um, That is just my read on the situation. And I hope you can um, figure out a good custody agreement and uh, move on and sleep peacefully through the night. 
<sighs> All right. So uh, our next letter is a little different. I don't get a lot of big picture, big picture questions from someone who's like, help me understand a concept. Um, but I, I thought this was kind of worth running because there was a, sort of a genuine sense of um, uh, a, a, what seemed to me like an honest desire to learn more and, and a real sense of some letters I get, which seem genuinely sort of, I'm pretty clueless. Like, help me out here uh, that I thought might be worth tackling. Um, do you want to uh, read this next one for us? I do. Wonderful. Help me understand what it means to be transgender. Dear Prudence, regarding, regarding gender identity, I am female, but I feel like I'm just a human. I personally don't understand feeling like a female or feeling like a male. Please, please do not ask if I am gender fluid or bigender because no, I don't, ever, I don't ever feel like a male either. If, as many say, being female or male is defined by the person, regardless of feminine and masculine stereotypes, aren't they really saying that there is no such thing as gender identity instead of that individuals experience a broad range of gender identities like I hear so often? We were told for years that gender isn't real. It's a social construct. This is clearly an agonizing issue for transgender people. So I think gender identity itself must not be a social construct, although I believe that stereotypes of genders are. Society doesn't raise too many eyebrows anymore regarding women in traditionally men's fields and vice versa. Stay-at-home dads, women who are just the primary, women who are the primary breadwinners, men who like to cook and women who love sports. Working with what God gave me, I want to, would want to, look as attractive as a woman or man that I can. But man or woman, I would be still who I am now and think I would be happy with whatever sex I was. I absolutely don't believe it can be as simplistic as appearance. So please help me understand. Oh, man. Um, yeah, there's there's so much here. Um, yeah. And I think uh, just like to do a really quick plug before we sort of get into some of the more uh, thorny questions that the letter writer brought up, um, the the sort of big question that that she asks is, I would like to. Um, I don't understand um, what it's like to be trans and I would like to. Um, and to that, I would say um there are so many great resources for that. And I think that's a really uh, wonderful, useful desire. Um, and there's a couple of writers. I'm only going to recommend um, books that I have already read. I know there's a lot of other really great stuff out there, but um, I, I don't want to shout out something that I haven't like kind of checked out for myself just yet. So I've mentioned this writer before on the podcast, but I think Julia Serrano is really fabulous. She is... Um, a biologist uh, and a writer. Um, she's also a trans woman. Um, she lives in the Bay Area, and and she's written a couple of books. Um, probably the most famous of which is uh, Whipping Girl, and I think is really useful because she's got um, this really solid um, scientific training, but also writes for a really general audience in a way that I think tries really hard to be as generous as possible, as clear as possible, um, and and as easy to understand if you are not necessarily a part of um, like queer academic circles which I think is a really useful thing to do. Um, so I really recommend Whipping Girl. And I also recommend her website. It's Julia Serrano. Um, that's Serrano with one R. 
um, dot com slash terminology. And she just has this really great, helpful glossary that's just sort of like, hey, uh, a lot of terms that come to gender, gender identity, sexuality can change a lot. Here's kind of some of the reasons for that. Um, there's not a lot of perfect words. They are going to change sometimes. She tries really hard to um, kind of acknowledge uh, the way that we talk uh, without sort of saying there is a perfect way of speaking and we should all be trying to get there. Um, and it can just be really helpful in terms of like learning basic terminology that you might not be familiar with. So I recommend that. I recommend her book, Whipping Girl. Um, I recommend She's Not There, uh, A Life in Two Genders by Jennifer Finney Boylan, as well as, uh, you know, of course, the classic Redefining Realness, My Path to Womanhood, Identity, Love, and So Much More by Janet Mock, um, as mm -hmm. well as uh, Transgender History by Susan Stryker, um, and then Trans Bodies, Trans Selves, a resource for the transgender community edited by Laura Erickson Schroth. Um, I'd also suggest, um, if I can, a please. book um, by... Uh, an author, um, a trans man, Thomas Page McBee, wrote wrote a book called Man Alive mm -hmm. that is also really fantastic. And I would encourage anybody to pick up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Is there anything else that you kind of just off the top of your head um, think might be useful for this letter writer if their goal is to sort of like mm -hmm. understand more or anything you think might not be especially helpful to them? Um, you know, I, I this letter is hard for me because I really like really do feel like this is a person who's like, I just I just don't get it. And I'm mm -hmm. really trying hard to get it. And I think as um, <laughs> as a black woman uh, and as a black queer woman, I, I frequently have conversations with people who want to get certain elements of my identity. Right. And the truth of the matter is like they just can't like it's and it's not necessarily that um, that is some sort of, you know, detriment for mm -hmm. them that they can't get it. Right. Because uh, I don't think getting it is actually the point. Right. I think the point in a lot of these situations is being able to believe the communities that you're not part of about what their experience is like. Um, I've always had issues with, you know, um, talking about police brutality or talking about what it's like to grow up in a black body. And, you know, having like that one white dude from college who you Facebook friended after a party, you know, who is suddenly like, yeah, I don't think it could be that bad or I don't understand how it could be that bad or how it could be like this. Right. And, you know, my favorite response to people like that is always, how would you know? <laughs> <laughs> like if I was lying about what it's like to be a black person, which why would I do that? But secondly, how would you know? Right. Like you would have no idea. And I think sometimes the point of these issues and these conversations are not that everybody gets it, but that people who have lived um, lives where they have been part of the power majority in different ways really just need to accept that they're not always going to get it and that's okay. Yeah. Um, you have to trust as humans. What we have to do is trust that when someone tells us about their experience as a marginalized um, person or, you know, with a marginalized identity in a certain way, 
um, we have to trust and believe them. Yeah. That that is actually what they're experiencing. Yep. Um, and that getting it is not just, you know, secondary. It can be kind of unimportant, <laughs> you know, and sometimes the search to get it can actually lead you away from some natural inclinations toward empathy. Right. I, I think that's so helpful because I think if you can kind of free yourself from the need to get it, um, you can actually do a better job of listening, right? Yes. Like, because the kind of analogy you drew with your own experience, like, I think we've all seen that conversation go really badly with the person who's like, no, you need to explain it to me. I need to get it. Um, because I think part of what's really useful is is to just acknowledge um, there are a lot of experiences that I have not had am not likely to have um, and don't make a ton of sense to me. Um, and that's okay. Um, I, I think you can hear somebody else's experience and think, wow, that's wildly different from my own and not feel like this is a mistake. I can't support or care about or listen to this person until I have had it so thoroughly explained to me that I think, ah, oh, yeah, I know what that feels like now. I get it. I'm done. Yeah. Um, so just a couple, obviously, like, we're not going to be able to tackle all of this. I know we just assigned you a heck of a reading list. Um, <laughs> but I want to kind of tease out the whole thing about feeling like you're just a human. Um, and I think part of what you are describing is, and this, none of this language is going to be perfect, but part of what you are describing of, quote, unquote, just feeling like a human, it sounds like this letter writer um, is, like, was assigned female at birth, lives as a woman, is experienced in the world as a woman, feels like a woman. It's all lining up. Um, and and to her, that feels so natural. It just feels like being a person as opposed to being a gender. Um, and what she's describing is a real sense of like gender congruity um, and what a mm -hmm. lot of people refer to as being cisgender. Um, your legal sex, your biological sex, um, the way that you live in the world, the way that other people see and treat you, um, the way that you express your gender, whether that's like hyper feminine um, on the butch side, somewhere in between is all like legible within this sort of realm of womanhood. Um, and it feels like just mm -hmm. being a human to you because everyone in your life agrees. Um, so yep. sort of like, you know, you don't see any 50s movies where anyone stands around saying, I feel very heterosexual because there was no sense at that time, right? Of like, that's a thing um, that was just sort of understood to be just being a human. Um, and so yep. like a lot of uh, queer language came along and was like, no, that is a thing. You're actually a demographic. There's a name for that. Um, and there was a lot of resistance at the time. Uh, I don't know like exactly when that was, but like this sense of like, that's not a thing. We don't need a word for heterosexual. That's just normal. And now uh, most people, even people who aren't necessarily super pro gay rights would feel comfortable saying like, oh, I'm straight. Oh, I'm heterosexual. Um, because there's been this sort of shift in acceptance of that is a thing. Um, so to think of your own gender identity in those terms um, and, and you know, the letter writer kind of mentions, I hear a lot from people um, that gender is a social construct. And that was a super popular, you know, you, you'll sometimes have heard the expression, all gender is performance. And that was like a really popular concept among like certain queer theorists um, for a long time. And um, I think it's 
you know, again, Julia Serrano talks about, like, that's a real oversimplification. It's kind of like saying all gender is genitals or all gender is chromosomes or all gender is social socialization. Um, it's all of those things. And it's it's a lot more. And so I think instead of trying to say, like, gender is this one thing or gender is that other thing, it's got a lot of meanings built into it. it it's got to do with bodies. It's got to do with identity, with life experience of, like, subconscious urges, senses of self, behaviors, some of which are developed organically, some of which are shaped by your language and your culture. Um, and, and that it's maybe more useful to think of it as kind of like a lifelong holistic experience rather than just like this one thing. Um, and to just bear in mind, like you can't get inside of somebody else's head. So you kind of can't know whether or not somebody else's gender is like innate or performance. Um, and that, you know, when we try to make judgments about other people's genders, we're basing it off of our own assumptions and experiences. So, um, like the letter writer kind of acknowledges, like, I hear often that gender is a social construct, but it doesn't always seem to be when someone talks about a real innate sense of self that is not congruent with like their uh, secondary sex characteristics or with the way other people experience them. Um, so mm -hmm. I think maybe instead of thinking of it as socially constructed, you can think of it as socially exaggerated, if that's useful. I Sorry, I, I feel like I just went on for a really long time. Are, are, are you with me? Is this making any sense? <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. And again, I think that's where reading Julia might be really helpful for you, letter writer, because she comes from the background of being a biologist and, and kind of talks about, um, you know, uh, oppositional sexism. Not that like she's pretty comfortable with the idea that there are um, that there are, you know, that maleness and femaleness, there's 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 biological realities to it. I think she kind of talks about it being more like a bell distribution chart, right, of like. Um, there's some in-between stuff and some incongruent stuff. Um, many people who are assigned male at birth feel male and like that works. That's that's a genuine thing. Um, and many people, you know, the same happens on the female side. But those aren't like opposites of one another. There's not like here's this very clear spot when one starts and the other begins and they are like totally in opposition to one another. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're totally invented um, or, or, or not a part of the experiences that we kind of all go through. Um, and, and she kind of prefers the phrase subconscious sex to gender identity. Um, and it's this kind of uh, inherent feeling uh, of belonging either to a certain gender or of being non-binary that's not necessarily related um, to either your physical sex or how other people see you. And it's pretty innate. And if that matches up with, um, you know, the hormones that are pumping through your bloodstream and the way that your body looks to other people, um, you don't notice it because it just feels like waking up and being a human being. Um, and if it doesn't match up and if other people react really negatively when you try to express that and you go through life thinking, wow, this makes other people furious, threatened, scared, anxious, um, that's really profoundly difficult. Um, yeah, it is real. It is persistent. Um, that mm -hmm. sense of self that is innate is often um, detached from how we are experienced by other people. And um, kind of the best way to learn about that is by finding out through books, through through other media, not by like collaring the first trans person you meet and demanding that they give you their life story. Because, you know, generally um, that's that's like not socially appropriate to do to someone you don't know very well, but kind of by seeking out mm -hmm. information of like, what is that like? I didn't go through that. So I'd like to know. Um, right. Yeah. It's also, you know, it's really easy when you are in sort of like that, that privileged position to, you know, to think that at least from what I see in media, it seems to come back to how they look and dress and still be accepted by society, you know, or to, you know, say that it seems like, you know, um, 
certain things doesn't raise too many eyebrows anymore. You know, it's like we're still a lot of these things are still new Mm -hmm. and we're still figuring them out. You know, I'm actually I'm working on a piece right now about millennial women who are breadwinners and the results like from these surveys and things that I put out have been fascinating and they've been fascinating because even though you know like a woman might make more money than you know her husband or her spouse or her partner or whatever right now um it is if her partner is male the the way it affects their relationship is different than when a man makes more money and it is mostly because of societal reactions a woman still will be asked you know like well how long is this going to last um right. at what point is he like or doesn't it make you feel weird or doesn't it mean he's less ambitious than you you know a woman who makes more money than her husband you know has all the pressure and none of the societal you know social benefits that men have men still have when they are the breadwinners in their relationships with women so you know it's it's A lot of these things, you know, we think because they are changing, the attitudes of society are changing. And that isn't necessarily um, the case. They don't change overnight and they don't change. They don't change overnight. Like a lot of these things are consistent. Like we're still having first female coaches. Mm hmm. You know, for sports teams, we're still having we're still having first women like sportscasters and things on certain channels. You know what I mean? Like these are not things that we have evolved. Right. We're not just done. Yeah, we're not done. And it's and it's not even like we're just like we still have a long way to go. Yeah. So, you know, I I think that sometimes from a place of privilege, it seems like things are changing really fast when actually for the people who are affected um, most by, you know, these societal restrictions, they're not changing fast enough. Right. So. Yeah. And I just want to get back to like this letter writer, I think, displays like kind of a beautiful awareness of reality more than maybe that they are aware of. Right. Like the letter writer says, like, clearly this is an agonizing issue for someone who's trans. Um, Mm -hmm. And like there's an understanding of um, it seems clear to me that it's not just about appearance. Um, There's something more to it. And you're like, you're right. You have recognized something Mm -hmm. correctly there. Like you, you get that it's not just about, um, man, if only I could engage in this set of behaviors and wear these types of clothes, I wouldn't care. There is something deeper to it. Um, and and mm-hmm. it's kind of um, kind of amazing. There's this sort of uh, mental exercise towards the end, right? Like, okay, I can imagine myself being male, but I can't imagine myself feeling any sort of gender incongruity. Right. So, like, I get my life now as a woman, um, as as biologically female, whole nine yards. um, I get it. I can even picture myself being born male, having, you know, legal male sex, being perceived as a guy, having testosterone and all the male secondary sex characteristics I can think of. I can get that, too. And I can imagine being happy with that. I cannot imagine, for example, um, continuing to feel the way I do right now as a woman, um, which right now is kind of lumped into this category of just feeling like a human being. But if everyone I saw tomorrow suddenly started treating me as if I were a man, 
I can't imagine feeling a sense of, no, this isn't quite right um, when when people treated me like a man. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think, letter writer, you, you are probably capable of imagining those things, um, which is not to say that you have to, like, do some big social experiment or, like, fully get it, but... Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's easier for you to imagine actually being male than it is for you to imagine um having some sort of trans experience and that's kind of remarkable. Um I think. Mm-hmm. Um and and I just want to point out that like part of the wildness of life is that people have really different experiences. Um people misunderstand one another. Um people want to be able to live um in a way that feels true to them that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you. Um and that that's really mm-hmm. real, I think and um that yeah, you're right. There there's not it, it's it's not about man if I could just be permitted to wear such and such clothes in public, that would um that would be all that I would ask of anyone or that would I, I would require um, in order to um, feel a, a certain sense of authenticity, wholeness, resolution. Um, so I would say pursue that. Pursue that sense of I know there's more to this. You are right. That feeling is correct. There is more to it than that. You are on the right track. Um, allow that sense of I know there's more here. Um, I know there's something very real that people are experiencing that I don't get. Um, and I want to know more about what that's like and follow that feeling. Just like let that be your guiding principle as you learn ask questions in appropriate ways. Again, like if you go to PFLAG and you want to talk to somebody on the phone and ask some questions or like go to an online like, uh, you know, resource for transgender people and ask questions there or read more books. Those are super appropriate ways to ask questions, um, not necessarily necessarily grabbing like your trans coworker um, or your trans like friend from college and being like, hey, explain everything to me right now. Um, just just in case you were thinking maybe that's the solution. Um because uh, that would that would be less appropriate. Awesome. All right, let's uh, let's move on to our next letter. The subject line of which is just should I be more ambitious? And I'm very excited because I'm pretty sure I'm going to say no. <laughs> um, dear Prudence, about two years ago, I left a very demanding job that I abhorred, but which paid me very well. I worked 60 to 70 hours a week, was on call 24-7, had horrible supervisors who frequently berated me and demanded constant updates on my progress. I was miserable and finally decided I had to leave for my own sanity. I took a position at another company that I was overqualified for and that paid much less but also gave me more free time. Now I can structure my day to my own liking and I'm no longer stressed. I find my work satisfying. In the past two years, I've been able to get back to the things I love doing. I have time to write, read, have a normal sleep schedule, work out consistently, and be a better wife. In a weird twist, my husband's career has taken a huge upturn these past few years, and now he is seeing a lot of success in a very competitive field, and our income has improved greatly. He likes what he does and plans on staying in the position. Recently, I got word that my supervisor may be moving on within the company. If this happens, I might be expected to interview for his position, since I've had the same position previously at two other companies and have great references. Since I found this out, I've been beyond stressed and I'm having trouble sleeping. All I can think about are the reasons I left my last job. The long hours, the huge staff to manage, tons of meetings, being on call all the time in case of emergency, etc. I feel like I have PTSD. Granted, my current company is different from the last company I worked for with a much more laid back attitude. The position would be pretty prestigious. It would look great on my resume and offer considerably more money than I'm currently making. 
I'm 41 years old and have no children. I'm enjoying my life so much right now, but I wonder if I should be considering applying for the position because my husband works hard to contribute so much to our household. And even though he says he doesn't mind, I feel guilty that I'm not making more money. How will it look at my current job if I don't display interest in this in advancing? Should I be more ambitious? I know at some point I will need to move on from my position as it's pretty obvious that I'm overqualified for the work I'm doing and it pays almost nothing. But when I think about my future, I see myself doing something satisfying and hopefully working for myself. A good friend and I who are in the same field are discussing, are discussing opening our own business, but that's definitely a few years away. Can you help me sort this all out? Ooh, girl. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> um, I Okay, here's why this letter was so exciting to me. Because I am in a relationship where I am the breadwinner. Um, and I'm in a relationship with a man where I'm a breadwinner. Mm-hmm. Um, by a lot. I make a lot more money than him. You know, he's great. But you want to give you know, us any I'm numbers? I'm out here balling. Yeah. Oh, I'll give you numbers. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm Ooh. really I'm really not afraid to give you numbers. Yeah. Um, Would you please? I, yeah, give us some numbers. Absolutely. Thank you. I bring in, um, at this point... Uh, by the end of the year, when you count my freelance and also my full time salary, I will bring in probably about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Oh, um, well as, done. as someone <laughs> as someone who is a, a senior writer for um, a large digital publication and also someone who speaks, does a lot of freelance writing, like I'm always doing things yeah. and I am blessed to, you know, have had this amazing mentor, Roxane Gay, who has always encouraged me to get my coins for my time. Um, and so now that's where I am. My boyfriend is a bookseller. He works at Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn, and he probably will, at the end of the year, um, make a little less than $30,000. Okay, from now um, on, I want year. all of my guests, if they feel comfortable, to share what they made this year and what their partner, if applicable, made this year, because this is officially <laughs> the best thing that's happened on the show ever. Thank well, you. I love for I love talking about money. Mm-hmm. I also... And I love talking about it because um, this is all new to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was super broke (laughs) before I will say April of last year. So Mm -hmm. just about a year that I've been in a position where I made even, to be perfectly honest, enough money, especially for living in Brooklyn. This is a real Um, testament to the mentoring services of Roxanne Gay, by the way. I don't think she's available for, for new people, but wow. (laughs) <laughs> Ask Thank anyone you, who's had the pleasure. Yeah. Um, but yes. Yeah, so what? Well, basically what I want to say about that is, um, you know, I have been the breadwinner. I am totally comfortable being the breadwinner. I am also, you know, which as I've done my little study of millennial women who are breadwinners, um, I have found that I'm a bit of an outlier in mm-hmm. that I am totally comfortable with the idea that I might always be the breadwinner in my relationship. Um, But here's the caveat. I like what I do. Yes. I'm not having to do any kind of work to support a lifestyle that we don't equally contribute to. Yeah. I get paid a lot. But it, I also, like, everything I'm doing, I'm into. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do so that Kelly can live, you know, a certain kind of life. So... What strikes me in this is that her husband is had a big improvement in his income. He likes what he does and he plans on staying in his position. He also says he doesn't mind (laughs) that she makes less money. Right. So So it's a good place to be considering these issues. Right. There's no like, oh, my hand is about to get forced. 
that is a fantastic place to be. You know, I always, you know, Kelly, when, when we talk about this, he's always very aware of the fact that we are luckily in a position that he can do whatever he wants, to be perfectly honest. And while I do think that creates some probably some added pressure, yep. um, it also takes some pressure away. Um, and one of the th- pressures that it takes away is the idea that he would have to find a job based on how much money he'll get paid. Mm -hmm. So I understand wanting to contribute equally. Like I totally understand thinking, you know, we have these financial goals. If I just make more, we can do more. But here is one of the key reasons why I don't mind and believe I never will mind that my boyfriend makes less money than me. Um, I hate coming home to a miserable person. Mm -hmm. I hate it. It is, especially when you enjoy what you do, it is the worst thing in the world to come home to somebody who is is not happy based solely off the fact that they don't like what they have to go do every day. And if you can take that away from somebody, you can build a beautiful life. She's happy. Mm -hmm. She's happy. If you want, like if you're interested in the position at this new company, then check it out. Ask some questions. Talk to the person who had the position before. There are so many ways to play this. Like, you don't have to go back into, like, that deep, dark hell that you were part of at your last company, especially you're at a more laid-back company. Like, I'm guessing if they want—somebody's going to mention to you that, you know, they want you to apply for this position or that you should apply for this position, you're already wanted. You know, people love to hire from within Mm -hmm. versus hiring from outside anyway, you are in a fantastic negotiating position. Yes, you are. Like you could end up saying, hey, um, I would rather instead of taking like a huge pay increase, let me get half of that. But also like. I'm able to work from home for a day, mm-hmm. you know, like let like I'm I'm only interested in this position if I can maintain, you know, my work life balance. Like people when somebody really wants you and your experience in a position, they will make accommodations to have you in that position. Absolutely. And they'll make reasonable accommodations. So if you show up with some reasonable accommodations that will keep you from losing your head again, um, but also allow you to do something that you like, if that's the position that you want, then, yeah, why not give it a shot? But don't think you have to go into it because your husband makes more money, because if he's happy, trust me, he is happier when you're happier, mm-hmm. like that's what he wants. So, yeah, that's yep. that's my like thing that I had to say about that. Because I'm just like, oh, I get this question a lot. Like, how do you feel making more money than your partner? And it's like, I feel great because I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah. And I mean, I totally understand the sort of innate sense of, well, what if something happens? Uh, is it OK to make almost nothing? Like, do I want to kind of protect myself? Like, should my partner die or get laid off or we break up? Mm-hmm. Um, all of yeah. which can happen. So I totally understand that sense of, OK, I don't want to go back into this horrible job where I never had any time to myself. But I also you know, would like to make slightly more than nothing. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Like, you don't have to apply for this job. You can definitely do a lot of investigation and see, is there genuinely a significant difference in the workload at this more laid back company? Or is it close enough to your old job that you would just have to say, like, 
guys, the reason I left my last position is I don't want to be a manager. Um, and the long hours were just not working for me. So I'm not going to apply for this job now. Um, but I totally understand that kind of fear of if I'm not positioning myself as ambitious, um, am I going to get kind of dismissed at work? Um, right. And am I going to be able to take care of myself should something happen? So I think those all make yes. a lot of sense. And especially if you're thinking, OK, a couple of years down the line, I might want to open my own business. Um, very cool. Also a real financial risk. So you might want to try yep. to think through between now and then, like, what are ways that you could take on some part-time freelance work that would help you gain the experience that you needed and maybe also uh, help you put a little money aside um, so that you mm -hmm. can kind of get a feel for what would it be like to work for yourself? Are you a good boss to yourself? Um, is the money there? Are you able to establish contacts in that field? Like start doing the legwork now so that when you eventually do take that leap, it's more of a like, well, I'm, I'm, I've built up like 80% of what I need and I'm jumping the last 20% rather than no idea how this is going to go. Let's take a flying running jump. <laughs> Absolutely. It's important, you know, and, you know, some of it comes down to how you and a partner do money, mm -hmm. you know, like if everything is completely separate and maybe you want to make more money because maybe now that your husband makes more money, he's like, let's go on vacation. And you're like looking at your account like, well, I don't have enough to contribute to the right. vacation. Right. You know, like there are certainly reasons to, you know, come up out of the pocket and make that happen. Um, I know personally, I decided when my boyfriend moved in that it like our our money was our money. <laughs> like that was how I decided to do things and that has worked out perfectly for me. Mm -hmm. Um but I know that, you know, other people don't like that, don't trust that, don't want that. Totally fine. Um, you do want to make sure you're protected however you can. I out-earn Kelly by a lot, but I also make sure that Kelly has um, his own savings account right. and that we contribute to that savings account every month because I, you know, no matter how much he makes, um, so technically I'm contributing <laughs> to right. his savings account, right. but I want that for him. I want him him that should he should this relationship ever end there is something that he's bringing to this process that for me is worth it it's absolutely worth it and I don't ever want him to think that if he leaves this relationship that he leaves with nothing right um because I just don't I don't I personally don't think that would be um, properly reflective of how our relationship has worked. So there are some conversations to be had here with your partner um, and also, to be perfectly honest, probably some conversations to have with yourself about your expectations, about your options, about whether or not opening up this business with your friend is a viable thing. And if it is a viable thing, then maybe you take this job where you make this extra amount of money and what you decide that whatever extra you make goes purely toward the effort of this new business. It's like right. make these deals with yourself, figure out what your goals are and prioritize accordingly, but don't deprioritize the progress that you've made personally over the past two years in making time to do things that you enjoy. I think yes. that would be a mistake. Yes. And if you're thinking ahead, I want to do something a little bit more satisfying and hopefully working for myself. Maybe there's some other job in the company that is um, a little bit more challenging than what you're doing right now, but is not at the level of like 
always on the go manager. So like keep your eyes out and like consider what is my next step? It doesn't sound like this is one that gets you really excited. It sounds like maybe best case scenario would be bearable. Although, you know, you never know, maybe this is the right company. And if you were to apply for the position and get it, you would really like it. But kind of think through, like, is there something else that pays a little bit more and asks a little more of me that is more in line with what I see for my life? So, you, you know, you're only, t- you, know, you know, your options are not just either super low key job that pays nothing, working all the time, totally stressed out or going into business for myself with my friend, but I don't really know what that looks like and don't quite have a plan yet. Like there's a lot of little things in between that you can do, whether that's picking up side gigs and doing freelance work in the field that you want to eventually start a business in, whether that's finding another job that might be available to you within the company that sort of splits the difference between the job you have now and the job you're afraid to apply for. Um, maybe it's doing some investigative work with the person who has that job right now and trying to get a sense of how many hours a week do you work? How many hours a week are you on call? Um, and and kind of figuring out, okay, is that a maybe or is that an absolutely no? But no, like you do not have to, you are not a bad partner because you are not bringing in more money. But I definitely understand a desire to bring in more money. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's fine if you decide you want to. But no, you do not have to be like, I'm doing a lousy job as a partner just because I make, you know, minimum wage or close to minimum wage. That's not, you you are not doing something wrong in that Hard agree. Yeah. Ashley, we did it. We solved the world's problems. We did. Again. Will you do me a favor and go back to talking in your jewel voice? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Oh, Mallory. Oh, yeah. It's been amazing coming <laughs> on to the show. I, you know, I got here and immediately um, your producer congratulated me on, you know, my new diamonds and I thanked her, but also kept an eye. I don't want anyone stealing my jewels before I leave today, but um, it's still been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashley. I just, yep, from now on, I'm going to ask everyone to imagine themselves wearing a lot of jewels, and then I'm going to ask them to disclose how much money they make, and I think it's really going to shake this (laughs) podcast up. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review of it. Or, if you'd rather, dig a hole in your backyard and whisper something positive about my speaking voice and then bury it. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. 